So this evening we're looking at why did Jesus come to us? And I just want to say um, welcome to you uh, if you're listening on the tape. You may be driving the car or doing the ironing or in the gym or wherever you happen to be listening to this. It's great to have you with us. Why did Jesus come to us is our question for, for tonight. And uh, it's interesting to see how the people who wrote about Jesus' life particularly the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all spend quite a bit of time seeking to um, explain and pass on to the readers of their, their accounts why it is that Jesus came. And uh, you'll see there on the sheet, there's Matthew's uh, response at the sort of start of his account of Jesus' life. He says that Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Uh, Luke, in his gospel, towards the end, he concludes, uh, this is actually Jesus speaking of himself, he says he came to seek and save those that were lost. And it seems to me there's a recurring theme as we read about the life of Jesus here on earth. He he came for a particular reason. Just as um, if you have a knock on the door, and uh, you open the door, and there's someone standing there, and, and they're there, for a reason. They've come to you for a reason. Maybe you've invited them to dinner. Uh, maybe they are the, the, someone uh, working for the postal services. That's unlikely at the moment, but it might be. And they've come to deliver something, to give you something. Maybe it's someone who's lost, looking for directions. People come to us for a particular reason. And Jesus is no different. He came to earth for a reason. And Matthew's saying to save us. Luke's saying to Look for us, something that was lost. And the message of the Bible, really, all the way through, and incidentally, there will be a talk on the Bible a little bit later on, so I won't say too much about the Bible itself right now. But one of the the recurring messages of the Bible is that, uh, as human beings, we have a a problem. Uh, We need saving We are lost in some way. And it seems that the Bible is saying Jesus is the solution to the problem. He's come to look for the lost and to save those who are in need of saving. That's the problem and something of the solution. But where do we start? Rather like the question last week. Where do we begin with unpacking this? And um, I'd love you to turn to the very first words of the Bible. Um, I don't mean the preface and the word of the reader, uh, the text. Um, And you'll find it, it's on page three, although that's not numbered. Um, And uh, you'll see the big heading there, Genesis, which is the name of the book, the first book of the Bible. Genesis just means beginnings. And, And here is the beginning of creation, the beginning of the world in which um, we live as we understand it. And according to the writer of Genesis, he just says this, in the beginning, God. And that's quite important, just to pause there. In the beginning, God. The writer is wanting us to know that essentially we human beings, in all our finery and in all our genius, we are not actually at the centre or the source of the universe. God is. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, Genesis, beginnings, it's, a, it's, it's an account 
of how the world began. It, it, it's an account of how we understand the world in which we live. I want to say here, uh, and all I really want to say, is that it's not a scientific account. It wasn't intended as a scientific account. So we shouldn't treat this like a scientific textbook. We'll be woefully disappointed. This is not a scientific account, it's a, a theological account. Theos is the word for God, logos is the word for, for knowledge or understanding. So theology is just the, the knowledge or the understanding of God. And this is an account of how the world began from a theological point of view, from God's point of view. He was there at the beginning. And oh, without going through chapters 1 and 2, but if you wanted to read this kind of, um, I guess it's, it's quite poetic language. Uh, and again, because it's poetic, that doesn't mean it's not true, it's just a different form of writing. Uh, and there can be truth in poetry as much as in history uh, and so on. But uh, throughout this poetic language, uh, the image comes across of this wonderful world, this paradise uh, this Eden, as the garden is called. But it's, it's a world of beauty and of wonder. And there, in the very centre of this creation, God makes man and woman, human beings, in a perfect world. And to be in perfect relationship with their creator, that's God. The Bible really is it, it's the story of an unfolding love affair between God the creator, and the people, people like you and me, who he's created. Do you know that song by Louis Armstrong, um, Wonderful World? Uh, I was contemplating whether to sing it to you tonight, but <laughs> yeah, no, then I prayed about it, Rosemary, and a, 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 a word of knowledge darted in. No, just read the lyrics. I see trees of green, and I see skies of blue. Uh, and so on. It's this wonderful scene. And I say to myself, the chorus, I say to myself, what a wonderful world. And I guess as we, if we think about the, sort of the simple lyrics of that song, but we look around at the world in which we live and we, can't we see traces of that? A beautiful sunset. In fact, the sunset tonight, did you see it? It was just that beautiful, I love when the sky goes, those wonderful colours. Or the autumn colours on the trees. Or maybe you've got a favourite holiday spot or a place in the world. Or perhaps you can think of a wonderful relationship or friendship. Perhaps you can think of uh, wonderful sort of memories uh, that you've enjoyed. And you think, yes, isn't life amazing? Isn't life fantastic? What a wonderful world. But that song um, kind of received something of a renaissance uh, as it was um, featured in the film Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, which starred Robbie Williams as a kind of maverick um, army DJ uh, who kind of woke up the troops and, uh, during the Vietnam War. And uh, the director was very skillful. In, uh, in the middle of the film, he plays that soundtrack. Louis Armstrong crooning away, I see all these beautiful things and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. But in the film, as we listen to the soundtrack of the, of, of, of the words, what a wonderful world, it's actually backing some of the most horrendous scenes of the 20th century. Uh, live footage cut into the film of villages torn apart by bombing, of uh, children and, and women particularly running from uh, 
bombs, an explosion of, of napalm, of, of children running with their hair on fire, of warfare, of terror, of devastation. And there's a kind of sort of strange kind of juxtaposition in the film. We see devastation and ruin, but we're hearing what a wonderful world. And it seems to me that little three-minute section in that film, Good Morning Vietnam, is, is, is sort of encapsulates the world in which we live. If we look around, it's, it's wonderful. Often, Christians are caricatured, perhaps fairly at times, caricatured for being sort of doom and gloom merchants. You know, we're all sinners and, and everything's terrible and the whole world... That's clearly rubbish. When we think about the relationships that we have, when we think about our capabilities, when we think about our altruistic moments... We think about the world in which we live. It's amazing. We're amazing. But if we were to play the sound and film track of our lives and the lives of others, if we take note of the news and the newspapers, I think we'd have to say, wouldn't we, with, with any kind of integrity in our hearts, there's a paradox to the world in which we live. It's amazing. It's beautiful but it also seems to be broken and ruined and marred. Why is that? Why is it that deep down, when we think about the world in which we live, we think about the lives of people that we know, we think in the quieter moments of our own lives, why is it that we have this deep innate sense that the world in which we live is not as the world was intended to be? somehow it, it sort of falls short of the standards that innately we, we seem to believe are part and endemic of it. We seem to know that our lives and this world should be better than they are. What's gone wrong with the beautiful world? We'll just turn over the page to chapter 3 of, of Genesis. Again, this is... Um, uh, a, a kind of uh, a story, if you like, to, to convey a truth. Chapter 3 and uh, verse 6, just as background, in the garden God has placed so many things for the people to enjoy. Adam and Eve representing the first people. Uh, and he's just given them one command. He's, he's described for them the freedom they have to enjoy the paradise that he's made. But the one command he's given them is that they may not eat the fruit from one particular tree. But God's enemy emerges in the form of a serpent in chapter 3. And he tempts, first of all, the woman. And so verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here, Christians believe, is where it all began to go wrong. Chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis describe a beautiful, perfect, unspoiled, unmarred creation. This wonderful image of, of, of God, the creator, walking in the cool of the day just wanting to keep company with those he's created and made to be with him. But they've disobeyed him. 
This one command he'd given them. They've chosen to usurp the freedom that he gave them. They've chosen to put themselves in his place as, as God and ultimate arbiter, ultimate rule maker. We'll decide. And in so doing, they've realized a kind of moral nakedness. And so instead of relationship, which is God's desire for us, they hide from him. Described there in verse 8. Hiding from God is basically what the Bible calls sin. We often maybe associate that, that word, uh, again, with sort of the, the, the naughty things that we do. But sin is essentially a relating word. And sin describes the break of relationship between God, our creator, and men and women, those whom he's created. And that break of relationship is, is, is sin. In the absence of the relationship with God, human beings no longer fully understand how to relate to themselves, how to understand themselves. And they cease to, to acknowledge how to relate to one another. Sin basically becomes entrenched in our lives as a refusal to acknowledge God. We go it alone and we live our lives seeking to receive all the acclaim for ourselves. There's a friend of mine who um, enjoys classical music and, and concerts. He was at the Albert Hall a little while ago. He tells this story of um, an orchestra who played. And uh, at the end, the conductor motioned to the wings uh, as, as the, the audience were on their feet uh, with rapturous applause and he motioned to the wings and um, there just, just on the edge of the orchestra was this man looking in increasingly part of the orchestra but looking increasingly, increasingly uneasy because even he would say that he had just a tiny part to play in fact he was part of the percussion and all he'd done was play a triangle at the appropriate moment. But he hadn't been the violins and the wind and so on. He, he just played the triangle. But clearly, he understood that the, the composer, uh, the conductor, was, was motioning him forward into the space. So, sheepishly, he, he put down his triangle and, and, and he, he sort of walked rather gingerly into the centre of the stage. Um, and my friend noted how the applause kept going, but died a little, um, but politely kept going. And it was only then that the, the, the percussionist realised, to his horror, the mistake he'd made. The conductor had been motioning for the composer of the entire piece who was waiting in the wings. He'd mistaken that and come out to receive the applause. <laughs> that wasn't meant for him, it was for the composer. So um, he sort of, oh, of course. <laughs> and, and out came crescendo of applause. And uh, there we are, made, <laughs> made for a rather wonderful evening, capped it off for my friend. But in a sense, that rather beautifully describes what we as human beings have done in creation. This wonderful piece, masterpiece that's been put together. And we step up and receive all the acclaim. We put ourselves in the place of the one who composed it all. And doing that, refusing to acknowledge God in our lives, is what the Bible calls sin. So, do you notice, just back in chapter 3, if we're sort of following the story, there are two questions that God asks men and women. The first is in verse 9, right at the bottom there, in the left-hand column on page 5. 
Um, these people have hidden themselves from God, broken relationship. But the Lord God called to them, to the man, where are you? Do, do you know, do you know that relational element to the question? Where are, I'm, I'm walking, I'm looking to walk with you. Where are you? You're, you're lost from my sight. Do, do you see now how, when, was it Luke who summed up Jesus as saying that he'd come to seek and save the lost? Those who've hidden themselves from God. God's question, where are you? And the second question, um, in verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the answer is, as Paul summed up, um, Paul was one of the early Christian leaders, and in one of the letters he wrote uh, to a church in Rome, and that's included in these Bibles here, um, chapter 3 and verse 23, he sums it up like this. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For us to be in perfect relationship with God lights up our lives and and points to God. Just as a light lamps up the beauty of a room. But we've sinned, we've broken relationship with him. And so the light of our lives in that sense has gone out. And the room cannot be seen in all its beauty and majesty. Everyone has sinned, broken relationship with God, placed themselves in God's place in their lives. And so they dimmed the reality, the beauty, the majesty of God as a result. What's the result of sin? Sin has spread throughout the world and throughout time. We see that if you just study the history of the 20th century, arguably the greatest century for technological advance and for all sorts of uh, progress on so many fronts in human terms. And yet more people were killed in war in the 20th century than any other century put together. The, The effect of a break of relationship with God is played out in a break of relationship with other human beings. Sin has secondly spoiled creation. Again, towards the end of last century, one of the newspapers ran a, a competition to see if we could come up with 10 words that encapsulated the 20th century. And it, it was rather like the, the paradox of the um, Good Morning Vietnam. It, it was full of miracle and mayhem. The words, there were words like television, technology, computer. And we think of, again, the extraordinary genius of human beings. But there were also in this top 10 Holocaust and genocide. Miracle and mayhem. And the impact of sin, brokenness and discordance has impacted each of our lives. George Bernard Shaw was once, uh, he was interviewed towards the end of his life and uh, he was asked by the interviewer who he said, you've been around Uh, Many famous people in the world, renowned authors, artists, dignitaries from every continent. If you had your life to live over again and could be anybody you've ever known, who would you most want to be? And George Bernard Shaw replied, Sir, I would choose to be the man George Bernard Shaw could have been, but never was. Sin and the impact of sin, it spoiled our lives. Sin, if you like, is the difference between what we are and what we could have been 
primarily in terms of our understanding and relationship and knowledge of God. And sin finally has separated us in terms of, uh, in relational terms. It's separated us from God and it separates us from one another. We're, we're cut off from God and so we seem incapable to live well all of the time with everyone else that God has placed on this earth. And that leads sometimes to a, 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 an extraordinary inner loneliness. Even amid a crowd, how many people are gripped by loneliness in this global city? Uh, one of the, the slides that appears on the, um, on the sort of show that we have is of a bit of graffiti on a, a university wall. Why am I so lonely here when there are over 10,000 people? And that, that loneliness is an, is an inner sort of psychological and, and spiritual loneliness as we're cut off and separated from God and as that's played out in our relationships. I, I'm a vicar in, in, in the church just next door and I, from time to time I just chat with people and see people. Um, sometimes in a sort of particular time of need they might come to someone like me in, in my sort of role. Uh, I tell you, I've met quite a few people who are lonely within a marriage. And we think, how can that be? But we've lost the ability to relate well because we've lost the ability to conduct our ultimate relationship with God. Well, I come into land now uh, and to finish. But just with this point, I don't know whether, uh, in, in, if you've ever had a kind of conversation or a thought about, um, about sin uh, and it, what it means and its implication, often I find that um, sometimes in the media or in adverts, sin is portrayed as, as something that's just a little bit naughty. Uh, it's kind of, it's just, a, it's, it's just a little thing. It's not that important. We talk about something being a, a little bit sinful. Ooh, like that cream cake. Ooh, shouldn't. A little bit sinful. It, it's that kind of, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's just a sort of marginal little sort of frivolity. And, and the little bit sinful implies that it's not really serious. But Paul, in that letter that I referred to, to the church in Rome, he goes on, having said everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, he goes on to say in chapter 6 of that letter, and, and, and sin has a penalty, which is death. And he's not talking there simply of physical death, although that's incorporated in it. It's actually a, a spiritual and finite death, a complete separation from God who is life. A separation from God forever. That's the consequence if we continue to live in a separation from God is that our death will, will mean, our physical death will mean that that separation will continue forever. We will, we will simply not know what it is to live. So how can things be put right? How can things be put right? Well, there are a number of possible responses I, I, I want to suggest. We could ignore sin. We could ignore this break of relationship. We could just say it just doesn't matter. Um, just down through that door, uh, there's a, a staircase. And in the wall against the staircase is a little crack. It's only a little crack. <laughs> it's a tiny crack. It doesn't matter. Or does it? We got the surveyor in. 
because we knew that what looks like a tiny crack now might grow to be quite a big crack if there's something quite significant behind it causing the crack. Now, fortunately, the surveyor, who's an expert, knows these things, said, don't worry, it's just a little crack. But even though the surveyor says that, we'll keep our eye on it. It's just a little crack, it's fine. But we don't trust little cracks. If you own a house and you see a little crack, you'd want to check out that that crack is not going to get bigger and bigger. God knows that the little crack of sin in our lives has extraordinary consequences if we don't do something about it. He cannot ignore it in our lives. That's why he sent Jesus to us. He took the initiative because he knew how serious this crack in the relationship could become. And if he doesn't ignore it, neither should we. But we could pretend that even though it's there, it's not really a problem. Bruce Forsyth is on the telly at the moment, isn't he? Is the, the, the sort of strictly dancing thing. But, do, but I, I guess a number of us might remember him in his, perhaps his heyday, really, when he did the Generation Game. Do you remember the Generation Game? Where they get all these couples or people who are related to do um, various activities. They had 45 seconds, I seem to remember, to you know, make a head out of papier-mâché or, or, or um, sort of, I don't know, trim a live pig. or I don't know, there was all these weird things. I had to, no, it used to involve clay, didn't it? There was clay and clay flying everywhere. And um, then 45 seconds, they get an expert in who could do this amazing thing in 45 seconds. And then they had a go. And these poor hapless couples, it was just, it was hopeless. And the entertainment was really laughing at how, what a hash they made of it. And Bruce Forsyth was sort of swallowing around going, you've got 30 seconds left, 30 seconds left, 15 for you, all right, stop, stop, stop. And um, they'd stop. And, and the, the sort of the audience would die down and he'd die down. And the camera would pan in on these pitiful, sort of, you know, before sort of splodgy messes and these hapless people sort of standing there. But Bruce Forsyth would always say, at the end of the game, he'd always say, didn't they do well? And, and I remember watching it with my sister thinking, no, it was utter rubbish. They did it appallingly. Oh, I could do better than that. But it was always this sort of, oh no, let's make out, it was fine. Didn't they do well? Didn't they do well? And it's almost as if, again, in our lives, we almost want to sort of Bruce Forsyth to be sort of walking around with us saying, oh, isn't he doing well? I mean, I know he's a little bit angry when you press him and, and, and prone to impatience. Yes, he's envious of that person in the office. And, and yeah, jolly greedy when you think of uh, how many people go hungry in the world. But I mean, didn't he do well? Didn't he do well? Which is why perhaps it's when Bruce Forsyth has gone away and everyone else has gone away. It's perhaps in the quieter moments that we think there's a disconnect here between the kind of person I wanting to portray myself as and the kind of person I know I really am. And the disconnect that I feel inside and the ache and the pain is symptomatic of the disconnect between myself and God. I, I, I can't pretend it's not a problem. I can't pretend it isn't really there. I know it's there. And I'm longing to be able to do something about it. So, so maybe we could sort it out ourselves. And just pull up our socks and, and try a little bit harder. Try better. Make some New Year's resolutions. How many people are really successful at keeping their New Year's resolutions? Not me. <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even do my own standards, let alone God's. And if Paul is right, if everyone has sinned, if everyone has broken in relationship with God, then, then we're all in the same situation, aren't we? If I'm drowning in a sea... It's not much use if I try and get help from someone else because they're also drowning in the sea. 
I need someone who's not in a position of drowning. I need someone outside of my situation to come in in order to rescue me. Very often people say, well, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I can see that I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a sinner in that sense, which is, and I've, I've broken relationship with God, I'm not conscious of him in my life, but, um, but neither is most of the other people I know. And, and I'm better than him and her and her and him. But what's the, what's the point in comparing myself with someone else who's in the same predicament? We're both going to drown unless we're rescued in some way. The great news of the Christian faith, the good news at the heart of the Christian message, is that God wants to do something about the problem of sin. God knows that we can't do it on our own and in our own strength. And so God sent Jesus, God in human form, to live amongst us, to befriend us, to draw us to himself and ultimately to die in order to solve the problem of sin. In order that the relationship between us and God might be restored. This week is why Jesus came. Next week is what Jesus' death on the cross actually did in terms of dealing with sin. How it is that as Christians think of the cross, they think of how new life with God, new relationship with him, may begin all over again. So I'd urge you please to try and come back next week as we hear sort of part two of God's solution in Jesus Christ. But let's pause there as we think of why he came. It's time for some tea and coffee, a caffeine injection, and then an opportunity to talk in our small groups around the subject of tonight's talk.